This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, the other half of the dynamic duo that is Seeing and Believing. I'm pretty glad that after 257 episodes, Wade, we've, we've still got the team together. Yeah, I mean, we're not immortal yet, but there have been people who tried to take us down and, and we keep coming back. Yeah, you could compare us to cockroaches. That does seem a little bit unflattering, though. I prefer... Immortal superheroes, that sounds a lot better. Well, speaking of immortal superheroes, today in the episode, we look at the new film from Gina Price Bythewood, The Old Guard. And we're also going to be reviewing a documentary about a literary superhero, Flannery, the new film about Flannery O'Connor, the great American writer, is out now, and we're going to be talking about it on today's episode as well. You know, Kevin, this podcast would have been a good person if there were someone to shoot it every minute of its life. Yeah, we should have a listener poll to see which one of us is the misfit and which one of us is the awful old grandmother. In the meantime, stick around for the episode coming up. Who are you? I lead a group of immortals. An army, I guess. Soldiers, fighters like you. Look, you've got questions, kid. I get it. You want answers? Get back in the car. Listeners, that is a clip from Netflix's The Old Guard. We're going to get to our review of that film here in a moment. Kevin, I was thinking about the two films we're going to be talking about, of course, The Old Guard and Flannery, and I feel like this is a very violence-themed episode, very dark. Yeah, there's uh, quite a lot of grotesquery to be found in in both halves, although at least uh, Flannery kind of let it all exist in your mind. I'll let (laughs) listeners decide whether or not that makes it more scary or less. (laughs) Yes, we'll get to that subject here in a bit. For now, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, Netflix's The Old Guard is the subject of our first review today. Here's the film's official synopsis. Led by a warrior named Andy, played by Charlize Theron, a covert group of tight-knit mercenaries with a mysterious inability to die have fought to protect the mortal world for centuries. But when the team is recruited to take on an emergency mission and their extraordinary abilities are suddenly exposed, it's up to Andy and Niall, played by Kiki Lane, the newest soldier to join their ranks to help the group eliminate the threat of those who seek to replicate and monetize their power by any means necessary. Kevin, we didn't get any big superhero films this summer, but The Old Guard looks to fill that gap with a gritty, action-packed tale of an Avengers-style team doing their best to save the world. Now, my question to get us started today Does the old guard fill that void in your MCU heart? (laughs) Well, the the void is not all that large uh, in in my heart, uh, I guess. That shouldn't come as 
much surprise to longtime listeners, but I will say that it is it is refreshing that this film's approach to kind of the superhero action is at least in a different vein from the very the really glossy hyper you know very expensive looking MCU you know got with all of its millions and millions of dollars behind it. It's nice to see Prince Bythewood kind of taking a different tack with her own, uh, with her own kind of superhero team up flick. Um, so I, you know, I guess, yeah, it does kind of fill the the void in my heart, and in some ways, I think it actually maybe fills it and then some. I think overall, it's not ultimately successful for me, and we're definitely going to get into why in a few minutes, but I guess I'm still waiting between movies like Logan and Takashi Miike's movie about the undying samurai. It's there, there's, there's a market for movies about kind of immortal superheroes that can take a licking and keep on ticking, so to speak. I don't think that any of them have ever really quite managed to be all that I want them to be, which I don't know if it, if that's a problem with me or just a problem with these these films, but I I found myself coming away from the old guard being glad that we at least got a good, you know, a straight ahead action flick with superhero overtones. A little bit disappointed though that it still hasn't quite cracked the code of how to make a story like this one work. Well, I, I think you're I think you are baiting me a bit because you mentioned Logan and then you say <laughs> it doesn't work. And I, yeah. I really like that film a lot. And I, I think what makes James Mangold's film successful is that Logan does heal, but old age is introduced and there is a limit to how far he can go. And I think some of the success that we see in this movie is these characters, they they are immortal, but they feel pain and they can die. And we learn later on in the film that there comes a point when they stop coming back to life and they they stay dead. So there is this vulnerability there. And it is a bit refreshing because we do get a number of superhero films where characters just get punched and hit and they're they're slammed against the wall and it's CGI everywhere and and they're fine. They're never really in danger. Here, we do get someone who is kind of a superhero. We get a group of people who are like that, but the edges show a bit. So I, I, I think that works. I think that a number of the action scenes are, are fine. Uh, I will go into why most of those weren't all that successful for me, but I, I thought this was an okay film. It's not a good film. It doesn't work on a number of levels, but... Maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just me not being able to see one of those popcorn-crunching movies I uh, lately in theater, so I, I kind of dug it a, a little bit. Yeah, I okay, so I'm trying to actually kind of work out why these films don't work for me entirely. Uh, and, and I guess maybe we can start talking, tar- start off by talking about Logan a little bit, because, you know, you say you like it a little bit, and the thing about Logan is I love its first half. Pretty much everything up until the point 
where the younger cloned version of Wolverine comes on the scene. So essentially they have Wolverine fighting against himself in the second half of the picture. Everything up till then, I just, I think might be my favorite superhero movie ever. Just, just yeah. that first half. It's just, yeah. it's, it's so, it's, it, it's outside the mold. It breaks the mold. It uh, finds a way to grapple meaningfully with the the fallout from the superhero action that you know has been a mainstay of popcorn cinema for the last decade plus. And I really appreciated about that about Logan. Uh, when it transfers more over into this more action-heavy second half where we kind of get the more mano a mano just you know fighting endlessly i think it loses me a little bit there and i think it's similar to the thing that i find loses me with the old guard is that these these movies haven't quite figured out a way to be about superheroes without kind of trying to have their cake and eat it too where they want to be they want to examine the existential angst of a hyper-powerful being who is essentially immortal or at least longer lived than everyone else, but they can't quite they can't quite quit the superhero action. They 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 wanna be both tormented about it, but also say, hey, this is kind of cool. And <laughs> let's let's revel in that a little bit. And I never have been able to, when I'm watching these films, reconcile those two those two forces they often seem to be working at cross purposes and it for me feels in the end like the film is talking out two sides of its mouth the old guard pays lip service to the fact that it's hard for the this team of immortal warriors to live for as long as they have and to kill as many people as they do and to feel cut off from the rest of humanity the way they do. Um, there's even a scene where the newest member of, of the team, uh, Kiki Lane's character, kind of confronts Charlize Theron's Andy about it, saying, you know, I saw in in this church where you kind of went all out to, to kill the people who were pursuing us, I saw the fallout from that. I saw all the bodies. You killed all those people. You slaughtered them. And I don't know if that's what I want. I don't think I can be that kind of a killer, which is a really interesting thing for the movie to explore. But then it kind of steps back from that a little bit because it kind of wants to have the superheroes get back together for the action climax and kill a lot of people. And I think that that's where the film kind of shows its true colors a little bit and it becomes something vastly less interesting as a result. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, especially as we're talking about Logan. <laughs> I I think that the action sequences in a film like Logan, and uh, not necessarily here, because I do have a problem with with some of the philosophy, as you mentioned. I, I think it I think it works if the film comments on that in a way. And I, I mentioned last week, my darling Clementine, and. At the end, there's this big shootout at the OK Corral. And the way that that is framed and the way that's put together uh, really says something about violence in the West. And I think that when you get to the end of a film like Logan, it's possible for them to uh, create a stunning kind of action sequence where at the end, 
we're not all that happy. We're relieved uh, that the bad guys are gone who were chasing uh, these individuals and that children were defended. Um, but we also know that violence does take a toll and we look at Logan as he passes away. So I think there is something to how all that works. I am on board with what you're saying about this movie though, because these characters are, are watching the TV and especially uh, Theron's character. Uh, she is lamenting all of the trouble in the world. And she's saying, we have been attempting to eliminate evil for generations and the world is not getting better. It feels like it's getting worse. And then the answer to all of that for them to do good is not to build on top of scientific knowledge and become uh these incredible luminaries in terms of the fields of research or uh, environmentalism or whatever, their job is to kill. <laughs> and and they do that by killing a lot. So the movie works against uh, her overall perspective of the world. And I think it falls apart. And, 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 and two, I, 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 I think it's important to consider violence in film and, how that plays out on the screen. And I think sometimes you can watch, and we've mentioned this before, you can watch a John Wick film and it's very violent, but you're you're reveling at the choreography. Uh, These individuals are are almost uh, uh, these, they are these physical performers who are performing these incredible feats. And there's there's something to that as as entertainment and as a picture. And I think in some doses it it works. Here, I mentioned the lack of CGI, and I very much appreciated that. But all of these action sequences made me think of something like John Wick, and I found them far less successful. And I, I much rather just sit around with these characters as they talk about their past and as they acclimate uh, this this new character, Kiki Lane's character, to the group versus them fighting. I mean, that's that was the, those were the least interesting aspects of the movie for me. After the first couple action sequences, it's like, okay, I can. I can just kind of sit back in autopilot mode at this moment. So the film does struggle in that arena. You know, I feel like now you're baiting me a little bit by bringing up John Wick because I know you like them a lot yeah. and I am yeah. <laughs> less enthused about them. And the, the thing about John Wick that I, you know, that, that gives me pause is that they, they are just these just incredible feats of action choreography and action filmmaking and, uh, I don't want to take that away from them from them at all. But my problem with the the Wick trilogy thus far is has been that I don't really get what any of it means, right? Like it's it's fun to look at, but I don't really find a whole lot of there there. With this, with the old guard, the the action choreography is a little bit less balletic. It's uh, less uh, elaborate. It's not as slick as something that we see in Stahelski's Wick series. But I actually kind of appreciated that a little bit. There's a a fight scene between uh, Theron's character and Lane's character. Uh, In the first act of this film, it's it's sort of like an exposition scene where uh, Lane is is learning about her new abilities and she's learning by essentially uh, having uh, the heck beaten out of her by Theron's character aboard this this plane that's kind of just you know they're in tight quarters and and it's, it's 
choreographed and executed in a way where it feels a lot more believable. Like Theron's not, you know, Theron or her stunt double, whoever is actually doing these moves, isn't flipping around all over the place like Spider-Man. She's kind of, you know, moving like you would expect an adult woman to move who's executing these moves. And I, I appreciated that. I kind of liked the tactility of that and the way that it meant that the later violence where these characters are getting stabbed or hit or shot makes it feel a little bit more like, oh, it does actually hurt them because I've seen that they aren't, you know, they aren't comic book characters in the same way as as uh, somebody like Wolverine or Spider-Man is. So I did like that about that. I think the larger issue is something you did touch on earlier, though, which is that the conflict that's central to this film, the, the evil uh, corporate overlord who is hunting down this team of immortals in order to exploit them, the, the way that conflict is framed kind of makes them seem not... like It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense given that they're positioned as these guardian angels of humanity. And I think that that's, in the end, a, a big problem. The, the central conflict is, well, can't they be used to defeat the aging process, defeat illness of all kinds? And that, if that's the case, why are they fighting tooth and nail and slaughtering scores upon scores of faceless mercenaries when in reality, they could kind of sit down with the villain and sort of like work out between themselves, okay, how do, how do we make this happen? Because we both sort of want the same thing. It's just your uh, stand-in for Mark Zuckerberg, so you're obviously evil for purposes of the movie. I guess if uh, Prince Bythewood had found a more, a better way to harmonize that conflict that made it a little bit more... <laughs> uh intelligible on on kind of a realism level i probably would have been less hard on this film but as it stands i just it doesn't feel like it feels a little bit half-baked like there are a lot of good ideas but there's there none of them are really drawn out in a way that makes them feel elegant or particularly well thought through yeah well and it's worth noting too that the the baddie in this film is a, a man by the name of merrick and he kind of represents all we hate about corrupt corporations. He runs a pharmaceutical company, and uh, he's played by Harry. He wears he wears a hoodie. He wears a hoodie yeah. underneath a suit coat. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the worst. <laughs> he's he's played by Harry Melling, who played Dudley in the Harry Potter film. So I'm not sure what that casting had to do with it, but uh, that's definitely there. Yeah, it, it doesn't work. It he's he's just the, the plot. That entire plot feels a bit half-baked. It's like, okay, we feel like we have to go somewhere. If we got to do it, you know, let's just go ahead and do it. Let's just do the big, you know, the big shootout. That's that's what everybody's waiting for. And uh, it, it just doesn't work. I prefer the scenes where these characters are kind of talking through their backstory. And they're, they're talking about how their immortality affects how they view planet Earth. And I think we need more scenes like this. I think that these scenes when they work are intriguing they're enlightening and when they don't work they feel like they feel like placeholders and uh, we also we also see how immortality uh hurts their relationship with others they watch all their friends and family members die they can't get close to them uh they 
do see time from a higher perspective. Their enemies have become friends. So two of the characters were, you know, they once killed each other during the Crusades, and now they're a part of this team, and and they're they're together. And those those questions, which are profoundly religious and philosophical, are I think they're pretty fun. And there's a scene where Kiki Elaine talks about God. And uh, Charlie Theron's character says, you know, I was once worshipped as a god. And I, I, that's, that's kind of fun there. But the film, like I mentioned, feels like, okay, we've got to get to this place. It is what it is. We are, you know, this is a quote-unquote kind of superhero type film. We, we need to go there. And it does. And it just doesn't work. I, I wanted to see it, like you mentioned, kind of continue to go that extra mile and do something kind of different. And um, we just, we, we, we don't get that. Uh, well, and it's such a shame because there, it's hinted because the film doesn't really give us a reason for how or why these warriors have the powers that they do. It really does leave itself open to uh, questions of divine providence. Like maybe these these characters exist as essentially ageless protectors of the innocent because someone out there wants them to be there. And there's a scene, a pretty good one, later in the film where you, where Prince Bythewood pulls out and kind of lets one of the characters uh, explain just how much of an impact these warriors have had for the good of all humanity over the millennia that they've they've been around. And that idea of divine providence is a very provocative one. And it's it's one that is held in interesting tension with the fact that these warriors don't see themselves necessarily as divinely appointed uh, guardians of humanity. They see their condition as a curse or as a burden, or they, they don't believe in God at all. Um, and having those two things in the same film kind of uh, pulling against each other is inherently kind of interesting. The problem is that the uh, Prince Bythewood never really finds a way to have that exist in a film that is built to to buttress it, right? Like it's it's an interesting individual element that feels isolated and cut off from the superhero action that we see. And it's not really integrated at all. And I think that that's maybe the biggest problem with the film is that it raises all of these provocative questions, but then kind of discards them when it comes time for the superhero action. And it's just a shame. Yeah, and there there's some really good ground here because uh, these characters, as I mentioned, they are they are just weary. They are tired because they have seen so much evil and the world is not getting better. And I, I really appreciate that because... It argues against the fallacy of like this human perfectibility, and it seems to su- suggest something about human progress and then courage to change the world in spite of that. And so, because of that, I I think there is a good case for why they wouldn't want people to uh, pull their blood and to use their bodies to help the rest of the human race, because they know that knowledge doesn't always equal progress. We think that knowledge is always good, uh, and and we are always so scared. I think Wendell Berry said this. Uh, 
in Life is a Miracle. We, we're scared of ignorance of what we don't know when maybe we should be more scared of what we do know. And so there's this good motivation of, okay, they think this will solve all the problems in the world, but no, actually it's, it's going to be like creating the atomic bomb again. But because the film doesn't really go there, uh, the motivation for the characters and the way all of this takes place, just it just doesn't work. And now, at the same time, I, I mentioned I, I think it's a I think it's an all right film. I think that there are a number of entertaining scenes. I think uh, Charlize Theron. It, I think she's really good here. She has that uh, furioso gaze and uh, that determination, and she really keeps this. She really keeps it straight. She she is committed to the role, and so the idea of a sequel, which I think this is one of, if I understand correctly, one of the most popular Netflix films, original Netflix films of all time. So the idea of a sequel, it's, it's going to happen. Uh, I'm interested in seeing something like that because I, I think we could get more out of this story and out of these characters. I really like Charlize Theron, and I'm so glad that this phase of her career, she spent so much time leaning into uh, her action heroine chops because she's just she's so good at being this this very stoic strong central presence on screen and prince bythewood really knows how to to use her and theron makes the most of the the role that she's given now am i interested in a sequel not really <laughs> like this is this is the sort of film that i feel like presented an opportunity for uh, Prince Bythewood to make a true rarity in our day and age, which is a self-contained superhero film. And it there's no real reason why it needed to uh, have teased that sequel at the end, other than that that's just sort of what we expect from movies of this genre nowadays. But... I, I feel like without the need to kind of really hew so strongly to its genre trappings, this really could have been something special or at least had the potential to to move in that direction. I just think that this is sort of the, the tyranny of low expectations where we don't really need our superhero movies to be anything other than entertaining and maybe present the possibility of a truly great superhero movie sometime in the future. But for now, this is just sort of an average one, maybe even a little bit below average. And it's it's a shame that it doesn't really swing for the fences, even though kind of all the raw materials for something like that are are here in, in the film. But Kevin... What if the people responsible for the second one listen to this podcast and they say, we could make it better? <laughs> Would you be excited about a sequel then? Because I, you never know. I, I mean, <laughs> if if anyone out there is listening and wants me to consult on how to make a, a really great superhero film, you know, uh, we do have our, we, we give our email contact uh, over the course of the episode a couple of times so they can they can get in touch you know my my lines open my my inbox is open i mean part of me just thinks that they could just you know watch spider-man into the spider-verse and, and that would also be a good way to kind of see how it's done <laughs> or toby mcguire's spider-man 2 uh, they could do that one as well which is amazing listeners 
we are going to give you our email address, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Make sure to drop us a line. Tell us what you think about the old guard. A lot of people have seen it. You can also tweet us at cbelievepod, at cbelievepod. Make sure to do that, and we'd love to read your thoughts on our next episode of Seeing and Believing. Don't go anywhere. We're going to go from violence to violence and talk about Flannery O'Connor here just in a bit. song is Serious by Spellworks. Listeners, we want to take an opportunity and thank you for supporting us via our Patreon campaign. When you do that, you keep the show going and we just, we're so thankful for your support. If you'd like to check out our Patreon campaign, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and you can donate through a number of different donation levels. One of our favorites is the what can you buy for $5 level? And Kevin, that begs the question, what could someone buy for five bucks? Uh, five bucks would get you uh, a pair of pants that you don't have to put on one leg at a time. So if you ever wanted to be the exceptional person who doesn't just put their pants one, one leg at a time yeah. like, like everyone else, then this is the product for you. Wow, I, five bucks is, is a small cost it's a drop in the bucket to impressing all of your friends all of the time that's just well maybe maybe, deal. maybe not all of your friends I, I will say that i have a fair number of friends but there is a small subset of those friends who would actually want me to put on my pants in front of them i feel like they they prefer me uh already pantsed by the time mm. we uh we interact so yeah use your discretion listeners if you do buy this product but uh yeah it it, it just know your friends know your mm. relationships well know yourself well yeah and i i always buy them a couple sizes too big because you have to you wear pants and then you put those pants over your pants so it's all above board, and Whoa. it's not weird or awkward at all. <laughs> I that that is dedication to to showing off for your friends. Is, yeah, is to wear to, to double pants yourself. That's uh, impressive. You, I, I am honestly impressed. You got to get yourself esteem somewhere, and so for, <laughs> you know, for me, it's it's there. Listeners, hop on over. Like I mentioned a second ago, to our Patreon campaign, patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Like I mentioned, we are so appreciative of all the help that you give us. We can and week out. We're also really appreciative of all the feedback you give us week in and week out. And 
I was sad, uh, Wade, that we got a couple of tweets from Christy Olson last week. I think she tweeted us as we were recording last week's episode, so we weren't able to include it in that most recent episode, but we're getting to it now. Uh, Christy just wanted to offer her thoughts on our review of The Vast of Night, which was a couple weeks ago now. Uh, She writes, I thoroughly enjoyed The Vast of Night and your review. Agree that the ending left a bit to be desired, but I so enjoyed having such a fresh take on sci-fi. I'd love to see more films like this. Lower budget, slow paced, lo-fi, sci-fi. Some others I can think of in their vein, Fast Color, Prospect, and Midnight Special, which she says admittedly is higher budget and bigger names attached, but is still unique and original sci-fi material. And I have to give it up for anybody who sings the praises of Midnight Special because that is also a film that I love quite a bit. So thanks for mm-hmm. writing in, Christy. Oh yeah, I, I do. I love Midnight Special. Uh, another film that I would add to the list, uh, Kevin, I know you're a big fan too, is the 2013 movie Coherence. That is a very yes. good science fiction low budget movie it's it's a very good film i i just, i want to watch it again just talking about it makes me want to turn it on <laughs> it is very good i like that film quite a bit and it, i still feel like it's just criminally under talked about it's it's not one of those films that made a huge splash but yeah it belongs on any list like christie's listeners if you want to write in on with your thoughts on low budget sci-fi that you've really enjoyed or if you want to let us know what you thought of the old guard you can always hit us up on twitter or email we already gave you that contact info earlier in the episode we love hearing from you one critic called her perhaps the most naturally gifted of american novelists flannery o'connor good man is hard to find. Wise blood, mystery and manners. Everything that rises must convince you. She's one of the best writers of the 20th century. I've read everything that she's written. Flannery O'Connor is one of the writers least afraid to look at the darkness. We've had an accident, the children screamed in a frenzy of delight. But nobody's killed, June Starr said with disappointment. We're back with the second half of our show. And Wade, I actually played around for a little bit while prepping for this episode about maybe a more colorful way to say that, maybe a a more (laughs) O'Connor-like version of that well-worn phrase. But I figured, you know what? I don't want to fly too close to the sun here. I don't want to try to imitate uh, somebody as singular as O'Connor. So I I, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to let it ride. I'm not going to get cocky. I'm just going to, you know, go with the the tried and true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was... I was waiting for an accent or something, a Southern drawl, <laughs> but you know what? It's probably best this way. Yeah, you you might have been waiting for an accent to happen, but I can tell you right now, you should not anticipate me doing an accent with anything other than dread. <laughs> we'll just say that right now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's uh, that's great. It, it, I I can't help but... But here in my mind, uh, O'Connor's work in a Southern accent, that's the power of her writing and the power of her, uh, I guess, her reputation. Maybe that's the best way to say it. 
Yeah, well, listeners, if if we haven't already tipped our hand enough uh, uh, by now, we both appreciate O'Connor quite a bit, and so we were excited to review the new documentary about her life from directors Elizabeth Kaufman and Mark Bosco. This documentary explores the life and work of Flannery O'Connor, whose distinctive Southern Gothic style influenced a generation of artists. Using O'Connor's family home at Andalusia, the Georgia farm where she grew up and later wrote her best-known work, as a backdrop, the the directors seek to paint a picture of the woman behind O'Connor's sharply aware, starkly redemptive style. The film includes conversations with those who knew her and those inspired by her, such as Mary Carr, Tommy Lee Jones, Lucinda Williams, Hilton Alls, and more, and Flannery employs never-before-seen archival footage newly discovered personal letters, and her own published words alongside original animations to examine the life and legacy of an American literary icon. Wade, I figure to get the discussion kicked off, I would ask you what your previous experience was with uh, O'Connor's work. How much of her have you read? How, how have you appreciated her? Or how maybe have you not appreciated her? What's been your experience of her body of work on the page, and how well do you think this screen account of her life gets at her life and her legacy? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I I have some experience. I think I've I've either read or listened to maybe a dozen of her short stories. And I say listen to, if you can get a good audio book of Flannery O'Connor's stories. It's it's really wonderful. I I feel like I I always walk around and I I don't know why, but I always say, the life you saved might be your own. Because there's this great narrator who reads that story and it's just it's just like wonderful. Uh, so I, I've it, probably about a dozen. I have yet to read any of her novels and uh, I've yet to read any of her nonfiction work. And so I have a limited perspective of who she is. And I've read a book or two about, about her and about some of her work um, that goes into a little bit of depth. I like this documentary because I think it gives a good overview of her life and it offers a, a pretty decent uh, overview of the themes in her work, the the background of her work, and the characters that pop up in her short stories. So I, I think that's pretty great. As for the form that it that it takes, it, it, it does feel a little odd because you read something like Flannery O'Connor and uh, her her style's just it's it's so wonderful, and then uh, this. This documentary is pretty straightforward, so I I think there's a missed opportunity there, uh, doing something a little bit more creative. But I I I just appreciate I appreciated sitting back, watching this, uh, learning a little bit more, and being reminded of a little bit more. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I really didn't like this this film at all. Wade. Okay, and I think part of that ties into um, so this might be a, a maybe a highly personal thing that is not really going to be descriptive of too many people's experience with the film other than my own. But when I think of O'Connor, uh, I, I, I like her work quite a bit. I think she's one of the, the great American fiction writers. I've read almost all of her stuff, um, in, including her novels. I just think she's, she's brilliant. And 
what I like about her work so much is that it's just, it's so difficult to pin down. There's so, there, there's so much that's unexpected about her, her stories. Her prose will often kind of take little swerves that you don't expect that just makes it a delight to read on a sentence level. And when you read a, when you sit down with an O'Connor novel or a story, it's, it's almost like you, you just don't know what to expect. And you, you just know that you're going to kind of have the comfortable cliches uh, that you live under kind of upended in some, in some fashion. There's going to be something she's going to do that is going to maybe shock you or or disgust you or or maybe scandalize you a little bit. I mean, there's been a lot of writing, especially in the past year, about uh, O'Connor's views on race and just how deeply ingrained her racism was. But for me, I feel like all of those, even those more problematic elements, are what make her such a singular literary figure. This film, I feel like, is the exact opposite of all of those qualities. I feel it's it's very, it seems engineered to let O'Connor kind of go down smoothly. There's nothing in here that feels uh, contradictory or spiky or jagged. There's not even really very much in this documentary that uh, the filmmakers use to present maybe different uh, views of her, right? Like most of the talking head interviews kind of agree with each other and their broad outlines of who O'Connor was and how she wrote and why she wrote the things that she did. And I think that O'Connor's much more complex figure in her personal life and her writing than this film lets on. And I think it does her a huge disservice to present such a a tidy overview. I was really hoping for something a lot more complex and interesting than this one. And what I saw here, both in just the way it was constructed and also just the filmmaking of it just was not, there just wasn't really anything interesting about it, which is about the worst thing I can think of to say about a movie that's about such a supremely interesting writer. <laughs> no, and I think that's, I, I think that's a great point. I, I think this is a informational documentary. So I would show this to a group of maybe high school students who have not who have not uh, heard of Flannery O'Connor or have no experience w- with her work. I-, I think it's it's beneficial there. I, I I I did I did observe the problem with the contentious material and the people who are being interviewed and. <laughs> The documentary observes why some people will have a problem with O'Connor's work and with things that she said in her life. Now, the the issue is they explain all of that and then they turn the camera to people who are either her friends or people who just love her work. Well, of course they're they're you know they're mostly going to defend it, and we don't ever really hear from people who uh, who say, "Hey, I might have been affected in a negative way by their by her work," and here are the repercussions. 
one person, one person alludes to that. And when they do allude to that, when they say, hey, she didn't understand what she was doing, they're not even on camera. Um, there's just archival footage at that point. And so we don't really get to see the other side and we don't really get to revel in the conflict that would be her work. Now, in another sense, I do appreciate how this film highlights the religion in her books. And I know that some people are saying, well, it's, it's, they have to, it's impossible to separate her from her Christian upbringing and her Catholicism. But I felt like the film didn't just give it a nod at one point, but really deals with how those bleed over uh, into the rest of her short stories and even her outlook on, on life. So I, I found it beneficial to learn about those things and and to, uh, like I mentioned, be reminded of some of those things, and even to, um, even at times, to take some short stories and say, Here, here's a short story, and here's what she talked about, and here's some things that happened in her life that might have coincided or influenced what she wrote about, and and that was fascinating to me. Yeah, I, you know, it there there are as a purely informational document this film has has some value especially uh for readers who perhaps knew about her catholicism but didn't really know much more than that bare fact like they didn't didn't they wouldn't necessarily know uh just how central her faith was to her life and so in that sense the i think the film does you know, it does do a service to her in kind of highlighting some of these things for somebody who might not be as as familiar with her biographical details. I think it goes too far. It it both goes too far and not far enough, I guess. And and I'm kind of sitting here trying to articulate to myself why that might be. Because on the one hand, I distrust many attempts when it comes to any author to kind of comb through their biography and draw parallel, draw one-to-one comparisons behind this story or character and something that happened in the author's own life. Not because the two don't intersect, they do, but because it often seems like an easy way for uh, a person to put uh, an artist into a box by, by saying, oh, I can categorize this work of fiction in my own mind by saying, oh, this is a stand-in, this character is a stand-in for somebody she knew in real life, or this event was influenced because she was going through a tough time in her own life at the time. So it becomes a way to sort of sand off the edges and make her, make, make the work more easily digestible. And I think the interesting thing about O'Connor is, is that while her life and her faith really do influence her work, it's kind of transmuted in a way where its its outlines become strange. And I think that strangeness in her fiction is where a lot of the magic is. When you read Good Country People and you uh, read about the the Bible salesman who opens up the Bible and it's hollowed out and it's filled with <laughs> you know obscene playing cards and yeah. alcohol, and then he steals you know, this woman's wooden leg and just runs away with it, that there, there's something so deeply weird and disturbing about that, that to take that and then say, well, she, you know, had a, a 
flirtation with a man who, you know, later left and got married to somebody else. And she was deeply disappointed over that. <laughs> like to take that irreducible strangeness and reduce it to this was her working through her disappointment over a romance that, you know, over uh, some, the one who got away just feels, it feels almost disrespectful to me. And that to me just... If, if I was wanting to watch a documentary that really got at the heart of Flannery O'Connor, I feel like this gives a lot of incidental detail, but doesn't come anywhere close for that exact reason. Well, and and part of it might be that it would be almost impossible for a documentary to to do that. Uh, and, and instead, what you need are you need some of the basic facts. You need to know about her childhood and the people who passed away and how death surrounded her. And she was a part of the South where, you know, you, one, one woman says that you can do all these things, you can commit all these crimes uh, in the South, but you have to go to church. Like everybody goes to church. And you need that background to to get into her work and then go to other people like Jessica Hooten Wilson, who dig deeper into Flannery O'Connor and not just what makes her tick, but the nuances and the complications within her short stories. And I find that fascinating. I, I will say one of, one of my favorite uh, sections of the documentary is, is when the documentary talks about uh, wise blood and the adaptation of Wise Blood, and I believe the adaptation is a Criterion release. I have not seen it. Um, I, I need to check it out. And how John Huston, uh, an atheist, directed it. And at the end, uh, he he basically says like, "I've I've been had," you know, like like <laughs> Jesus wins at the end of this. And th- that is illuminating to me because it gives us the sense that when we read her books. We really have to look past, we have to look, not maybe not past, but through what's happening. So she is not, uh, she is not decrying all of religion when you have a Bible salesman who uh, is a nefarious individual. She, uh, she is not decrying religion when she talks, when the misfit you know, has this monologue about Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, she's doing something else. And she's going further, and you need to you need to get that if you want to get her. And so I, I think I think there are elements in this documentary where the film uh, it does do those things, and it does at least encourage the viewer to probe deeper. It's weakest when, as you said, uh, it it attempts to give straightforward answers to, to questions that are not straightforward. Uh, they're they're very complicated, to be honest. Yeah, I guess even I, I did like that story uh, about John Huston's adaptation of of, uh, of of Wise Blood, and I did like how the directors end that section of the film with Brad Dourif, the film the, the adaptation's star, uh, relating how John Huston said Jesus wins, and then boom—that's the end of that section of the documentary, and we're on to something else. I like—I I thought that was very interesting, but I—I I think that's not really enough for me in a film like this. You know, I think about a documentary like *The Act of Killing*, right, which is another film that is 
more or less a biographical documentary. Like it, it's it's not about just Anwar Congo, the the s- central subject of the film. It's about so much more than him, but he's kind of the the overall focus of the film. Like he's it's chronicling his past is one of the documentary's primary interests. And Joshua Oppenheimer, if he had made that film where it was essentially a series of talking heads explaining this is how the Indonesian uh, genocide occurred, this was Anwar Congo's place in it, this these were how many these were the people whom he killed, and just sort of laid those out in a series of talking heads interview, it would be a much lesser film. What Oppenheimer does to make it into something truly singular and memorable is he finds these phantasmagoric sequences where one of the one of these killers dresses up in drag and dances outside of this this old restaurant that looks like a giant fish or he has these reenactment scenes where the killers uh, essentially reenact nightmares they've had about the murders they've committed. And all of it's very surreal. And the overall effect is that creates in the viewer a feeling of just the deep strangeness and evil that is involved in killing so many other people. And I was kind of looking for something like that in Flannery where the filmmaking would find a way to express visually what it's like to to read Flannery O'Connor's work, or maybe this would have been great, to kind of recreate what it would have been like for Flannery O'Connor to create that work or to have the sort of life that would give rise to that work. And the pedestrian talking head format and even the animations, just there's not really anything enlightening about them. It's it's all so straightforward that it almost makes O'Connor seem dull. If you hadn't if I hadn't read anything by O'Connor and then I watched this documentary, I don't think that I would know what made her so special. And that maybe is is my overall problem with the with the documentaries that takes takes her and it makes her seem not special and that just seems again, it just seems a little disrespectful. No, and I I totally get that and I I wonder if my I wonder if my previous uh, experience with O'Connor's work uh, keeps me from seeing that, and, and instead I see a documentary attempting to give kind of a a basic, uh, though at times enlightening, look at who she was as a person and hopefully what made her tick and some of the influences in the themes and the ideas. I do think the weakest aspect of this film is it needs to dig into some more, some of these more contentious issues and to give other people an opportunity to have their say and to maybe just let the viewer linger with that. And I think the complication with those things could actually uh, bring out some of the work a, a, a bit more. Listeners, that is our review of Flannery. Make sure to check it out. It's coming to virtual cinemas very soon, and you can uh, rent it and watch it from home. So give us your thoughts on Flannery and what you think of her as an author in general. We'd love to hear those comments. You can email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at cbeliefpod, cbeliefpod. Kevin, we've reached the end of our episode, and at this point, we give our listeners a recommendation from the world of television and or film, and I would like to hear your recommendation this week. (laughs) So I spent a lot of time 
talking about how The Old Guard wasn't the sort of superhero movie that I wanted, and how Flannery wasn't the sort of documentary that I wanted, and how they just they weren't weird enough, and there are, there are all these shortcomings. So I think it's incumbent on me to give an example of a film that kind of maybe ticks more of those boxes. So my recommendation for this week is Tim Burton's 1992 superhero blockbuster, Batman Returns. So I'm not actually, uh, I'm not saying this is a perfect film, and I'm not a huge fan of Burton as uh, a superhero action filmmaker. I think he's, he's not a great action filmmaker, but what he is great at is taking a cast of weirdos and making them so poetic and grandly tragic that you're more compelled by them than you all than you are by all the superhero daring do. I just I, I recently this was my first encounter with Batman Returns was a few weeks ago. I watched it with with some friends and I was just really caught off guard by how just bizarre some stuff in this film is. You know, Danny DeVito eats raw fish. He bites off the nose of somebody at some point. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is just this weird combination of alluring and psychotic and tragic. There's there's something about the way Burton creates these characters, films them, and also orchestrates the production design to create this not a funhouse mirror, but just a a very deeply uh, idiosyncratic, singular vision of a world where there are good messed up people and there are bad messed up people, but they're all kind of messed up, and they're so compelling that in the way that Burton frames them that I don't know. I I think about Batman Returns way more than I think about now. Uh, a lot of superhero films that I would call maybe technically better. And a lot of that has to do with Burton's fearlessness in really just finding very strange ways and very compelling ways to tell a story like this. So I think it's quite a quite good. I've heard some people say it's one of their favorite Christmas movies. So I don't know if I'd go that far, but hey, you know, if, if, if it's Christmas time and you're looking for something a little bit off the beaten track from It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Batman Returns is certainly an alternative. Oh man, you know, I I I went back and watched this film, uh, I don't know, it's probably a couple years ago, probably, probably six six years ago. And I was I was surprised that I was allowed to watch it uh, as young as I was because we watched this periodically when we were when we were younger and it's, it's dark it's dark and it's weird and but it's it's pretty good there I love that kind of opening sequence when uh, they kind of put uh, they put uh, Danny DeVito's character I guess he's a baby but they put him in this basket and he kind of like goes through the river and the Danny Elfman scores going on it's like this sort of strange Moses uh, sequence and there's just a lot in this I don't know a lot in this picture and it's it's I, I think it's pretty good I it's due for a rewatch for me yeah I it, it does definitely seem I, I read an article about how uh, Burton didn't work on the next Batman films after this because you know the um, studio had this merchandising agreement with McDonald's to sort of sell cups and collectibles with images from this movie. And then they saw the finished project and they're like, how are we going to put this on like 
Happy Meals and stuff. This is not kid-friendly. And I I love that because it it harkens back to a day when maybe a filmmaker could could get away with that a little <laughs> bit more with a huge superhero property like Batman. Oh yeah. I mean I was a big Batman fan, so we had some of the toys and then they had these uh these collectible glass mugs and I, my family, we got rid of them years ago. My mom did, but I wish I still had one because they're these kind of high quality glass. They're actually pretty decent. Uh, I think you would collect coupons and then you have to pay a couple bucks and they would have the characters engraved on it. And then the, the handle was kind of like this jagged, uh, handle it, it was is it really interesting the mcdonald's did that and we had some and yeah it's just uh it's kind of weird uh speaking of uh chills uh my recommendation this week is related to the flannery documentary it's not from film or television uh but it's actually her short story the enduring chill which is really funny it has a great ending and i'm actually recommending uh the uh the reading of the short story by Stephen Colbert. He did it at the Symphony Space in New York a couple of years ago. And he does a fantastic job of verbally interpreting this book through the way that he reads it. I would give you an address of where to find this. Uh, Truth be told, I think you just need to Google it. It's kind of all over the place, and I think it's been deleted and re-uploaded. But if you're interested in uh, this short story, uh, Stephen Colbert reads it. It's about an hour long, and uh, it's pretty great. Yeah, they can't. You can't really argue at all with a recommendation of a of, of an O'Connor story. I mean, there's just so many good ones to pick from. Yeah, yeah, and it, I was I was trying to think of my favorite out of the ones that I've I've read, and uh, it's just uh, yes, it's it's not easy. Listeners, that is the end of our show. Once again, make sure to rate and review us online. Drop us a drop us a line uh, and let us know what you thought of this show also if you have some recommendations for us uh, we're always looking for films to review especially in this kind of uh, very different season where we're not going to the movie theater so make sure to send us some thoughts thank you for listening to this week's episode it's brought to you by christandpopculture.com our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm wade beard and my co-host is kevin mcclinathan and until next time this is seeing and believing you have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.